You're now listening to Sound Talent Media. Check out more shows at SoundTalentMedia.com. This is the Jabberjaw Podcast Network. Visit JabberjawMedia.com for more shows like this one. guys it's doc coil it is the x-man podcast thank you so much for checking out the program i appreciate it very difficult times going on right now it's uh i've kind of i don't know if you guys heard of a couple weeks ago i did a show and at the end of the show my kind of post comments i gave some pretty fiery remarks in response to some of the the protests that were going on the you know liberate blank <laughs> protests and I don't want to say I've come full circle on on that stance you know because I, I I do think there's there's something reckless about that mentality and I do think there are all there are bigger motives and forces that organize uh that that that, that sentiment but I will say I've, I've become more empathetic to different takes on it and in that, I, I can just, you know, if you're the type of person that doesn't, um, that just wants to get, wants to get back to normal, wants to get back to your job or, you know, get back to the gym or traveling or concerts or whatever, I just, I empathize wholeheartedly because I would like to get back to all those things as well. But it's one of those situ- situations where, it's difficult to say, hey, you know what? X amount of people are going to die anyway. And that's just part of it. So we have to get on with it. But the problem is when people make that argument to just open things up and get back to normal, they don't really acknowledge that they're kind of sending a certain segment of the population to the gallows, more or less. Um, but, you know, the, the thing I, I would say that I'm most fearful of in this this current time is any source of media or anyone with a voice that is a little too confident about their perspective. Because the smart, I feel like I follow pretty smart people and I, I try and find the, the best information and people with the best takes or someone that's got a little bit of a, hey, here's this take on it that, that, that I haven't heard. And even the smartest who I've, I've heard really don't have any great solutions or great answers. And that's scary, you know, uh, because I'm, I'm the type of person who always thinks about non-conventional wisdom. You know, that everyone else focused on thing A or everyone's uh, natural intuition leads them one way, but it's the counterintuitive thing that is usually the best answer. And even counterintuition, I don't think helps because I think people who say we should just get back to work and forget about all this, it's just the government telling you, I think there it's a it's a rebellious streak, right? It's saying this great power is telling me I can't do X or Y and Z, 
And I'm an American. I have liberty. You can't stop me. But I, I wholly empathize with that, that vantage point. You know, but unfortunately, you know, I said in that other podcast, I'll say it again. And unfortunately, what I, from what I see, there's only bad options and worse options. And unfortunately, because this country, we have 50 states. In those states, there's different counties. Within those counties, there's different cities. And everyone has their own policy. We don't really have national sweeping things that say, bam, this is what we're going to do. We're going to do this one thing or three things. So you get a mishmash and it ends up being this kind of compromise where almost nothing is effective. So I think, unfortunately, our country in particular is going to suffer and things will extend longer than in a lot of the places. Like, So you can hate on a place like China or some of these other places that have a more top-down authoritarian type of uh, government. But when they have a problem like this, they can just literally lock everything down in a very draconian and hard, finite way, or or not finite, but um, kind of granite hard way. And then they can kill the problem a lot quicker than us. But since we don't really, like, our, it reminds me of that, that scene in uh, Avengers Endgame where Iron Man goes, you know, I, I was saying we needed a, a suit of armor around the world, but you didn't want to give up your precious freedoms. You know, and it's it made me think about Americans because, you know, we value our freedom so much that that in some ways we our society is more dangerous, right? Uh, people love their freedom, so there's more gun violence because we love our freedom. Um, we, you know, perhaps eat more, drink more, or kind of uh, have all these other healthy lifestyles because we're saying, "Oh, I can do this because I can do it," right? Mayor Bloomberg can't make me not drink a giant soda. I'm expressing my freedom. You know, but it, 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 there's a, it's a dual sided kind of a double edged sword, you know? And, um, so I think it's going to be really rough in America. And, and I think the worst part about it is that it's dividing us, you know, even more, we were the most divided we were. And now how you feel about COVID-19 has to do with, you know, tends to be a partisan issue, whether you're red or blue. And that's insane to me. You know, uh, political affiliation shouldn't have to do with facts are real. And it's really sad, you know. Um, so I'm not trying to be, you know, absorb my information from one end of things and say this is the way it is and this is the way it isn't. Um, it's just really troubling. So I think, you know, I'm, I'm amidst the, the fog right now. And if anyone is a little too confident about, well, this is the one answer. I think people like in, in this current times, like Trump got in trouble a little bit before about talking about, you know, putting, you know, bleach in your in your body or or UV rays or something, which, you know, I, I'm, I'm kind of mangling what, what, what he said. But but I think his tendency is to think there's a silver bullet, you know, problems like this. It's like, well, you just invent a thing and then it kills it. And. That sounds great, you know, and if I listen, I hope that happens. Let's, you know, knock on wood and pray to pray to Jehovah, you know, or, or whomever, Valhalla, that uh, there's one kind of thing. And I, it, and but it probably won't be that. And I think that's difficult to sell to people because it's it's pessimistic. And his whole brand is when I'm in office, everything's great. And when I was in office, it was a nightmare. 
and I'm the solution to everything. So that's that's a tough thing to sell when you're trying to galvanize people. It's um, you know, inspiration is an art. But uh, but anyway, and, I, and I'm kind of coming out here and maybe perhaps not being that inspirational, but but kind of reflecting my, you know, being in that morass of confusion and not knowing, you know, kind of not being able to see the end of of the tunnel. You know, it's a little scary. But anyway, I just wanted to kind of talk about real quick. Hopefully, I didn't bum anyone out too much. You know, I don't think I was being too pessimistic, but it's uh, it's scary times, and and it, it has to be talked about. Anyway, we have a sponsor this week. Oh yes, we do. It's actually a second time sponsor, which is which is very exciting. It's a band from Canada near Toronto, and the band is called Dead Defined. We're gonna play a track entitled Lifeline. Check it out.
Hi, this is Chad Nicefield. And this is Justin Press. We're the host of Making Waves, the Shiprock Podcast, a part of the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. We're inviting you to sail away with us on an epic journey in musical enlightenment. Every week, we bring you only the best artists in rock music and discuss everything from the cruise to the stage to the saga of being a professional recording artist. We'll have lots of special guests along the way, so tune in every week. Your stateroom is available every Monday morning, so welcome aboard. Hey, this is Steve Choi, host of the Musicians Guild podcast, part of the Sound Talent Media Podcast Network. Within the four walls of the Musicians Guild, we'll be discussing the habits, idiosyncrasies, experiences, and general psychology of my friends and peers all involved with music in various capacities. Listen and subscribe at SoundTalentMedia.com. Hello out there! Yes, hello out there, everyone. I'm Hal Schwartz. And I'm Flynn McClain. Together we host None But the Brave, a podcast dedicated to the music and career of Bruce Springsteen. Bruce and E Street Band are on tour right now for the first time in six years, and we're taking a detailed look at what's happening on stage in our bi-weekly episodes. We've also been recently joined by some very exciting guests, including rock journalist Warren Zanes and Stephen Hyden, Backstreet's Magazine founder Charles Cross, and Barstool's Kirk Menahan. If you're a diehard Springsteen fan, this is the show for you. So please subscribe to Nimbut the Brave on your favorite podcasting platform, and we hope to see you further on up the road. Thank you so much! We'll be seeing you! So that was a lifeline by the band Dead Defined, and believe it or not, that is actually a one-man band. That's right. That is just one man. His name is Craig Ewan. And as you can hear, he is extremely talented. That is a that is a very catchy song. Look, sounds like it's uh, ready for the radio. Uh, no, I thought that was actually really catchy. And I was checking out the video, and it's getting a, a ton of views. And so Dead Defined seemed to be having some traction out there. But yeah, that was uh, all uh, done by Craig, and it was produced and engineered by Mike uh Dimitrovic of Voodoo Records in Canada, which is what the album is out. And yeah, he was out in the country and he moved to Toronto to get this uh, this this project going. And I think it sounds great. And I'm happy that they're actually having some progress with stuff. And it's really, really awesome. But anyway, if you want to check out the band, you can go to deaddefined.com or you can go to facebook.com backslash deaddefined. They're on SoundCloud and they're also available for streaming on Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube, etc. Anyway, thank you so much to them. If you're interested in sponsoring the show, please hit me up on social media, send me a DM, or drop me an email to the Xman Podcast at gmail.com. Remember, that is EX. And without further ado, let's give a quick intro to our guest, Mr. Paolo Gregoletto. He is the bass player and backup vocalist for the band Trivium. In many ways, I feel like he's one of the guests that needs no introduction for this show. I imagine if you've been a fan of the work I've been doing for years and kind of follow a lot of the artists on this show, I'm sure you're very, very familiar with Trivium. I've known this guy for a really long time, as you'll hear. Um, He's probably the guy in the band I'm, I'm the closest with, which is why I wanted to get him on the show. Because he's a pretty quiet guy, even though he's he has a very vibrant internet presence. He's, you know, in person, he's very reserved. And, you know, hopefully I could capture some of that behind the scenes shit talking stuff that that we do in, in, in our time. But he's just a really good buddy. 
And I just have a ton of respect for him and his band. So we've been trying to make this happen for a while. And I really appreciate him taking the time to do this. So like I said, I don't feel like I don't have to say much. You know what's going on. It's Paulo. It's Trivium. It's going to kick ass. So please check out my conversation with Paulo Gregoletto. What's the word, man? How's uh, how's things things going i mean it's kind of weird you guys yeah. basically put an album out <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean it's it's been kind of crazy uh you know obviously we were making plans in like january february for the album release and then slowly but surely everything started to unravel with uh you know obviously how serious things were and uh so we had to start like you know canceling the asian tour we were supposed to do then it was the european press trip and then Pretty much after that, it was like, okay, we're going to have to rethink how we're releasing this record because, uh, yeah, we're not going to be able to travel, not going to be able to do like normal things. We luckily got, you know, the first video done and then the second video, the director, the same guy that did Catastrophist, he had to do this video as like the UK is like locking down. So it was like a a scramble to kind of get things, you know, done before we could, uh, you know, start releasing stuff for the record. So it was a quite a couple weeks of just like, okay, how are we going to do this? We're just putting the plans together on the fly and it turned out great, but uh, it was a lot of work. Was there any ever thought maybe to push the record back or anything like that? Um, You know, we talked with Roadrunner about it, but it was like, um, we pretty much had all of the, uh, di- you know, the direct-to-consumer type stuff, the vinyls and all that stuff was already made. So yeah. we didn't have to worry about that. And we were just kind of willing to sacrifice maybe not selling the same amount of physical copies because of stores being closed. You know, we just wanted to get the, the music out. We felt like everyone was kind of clearing the space, so maybe we could use that to our advantage a bit. And I think it's kind of worked out that way. And we seemed to, like... Just by pushing forward, people were like really stoked that there was just a new album coming out because a lot of things have been pushed back to the summer. Yeah, I mean, I mean, for what I've seen, just the the general feedback has been really great. On every seems like every time you guys put out a, put out even on the lead up before the full album was out, mm-hmm. every song that came out, everyone seemed to be like really hyped up. I mean, and you guys, <laughs> you know, like I always look at uh, Trivium, you know, as this band that just kind of you kind of do your own, you're in your own lane and you do your own yeah. thing, but you have, you've built this connection with your fans that it seems like you don't really need a middleman. Like you can mm-hmm. go, you guys can pretty much go right to your people and yeah. communicate to them, whatever it is, whether it's like I said, a tour or an, or an album or anything like mm-hmm. that. Um, and so, I mean, and obviously that's built over, over the years, but it's, but it seems like, yeah, like it, it because the the product is there and the album, the quality is there, and combined with that ability for you guys to reach directly to your audience, it seemed like yeah. it, it's doing okay. Yeah, I mean, I think every band is it's a different situation. So I definitely, when bands have to kind of put things on hold, you know, I understand. I, I think you, you can't really judge every band situation the same. And I, again, I maybe it would have been different if we didn't have all those things already made and at at a warehouse ready to go. Yeah. Um, you know, but I still think we wanted to get stuff out. We felt, you know, we had already made the music and we were willing to kind of make some sacrifices to get it out. But, uh, 
you know, we've we've built up over the years the connections, like you said, with our fans, and um, they are totally understanding. And we told people, like, you know, maybe there there'll be some disruptions with like CDs or vinyls getting out, especially the stuff that's outside of our hands, like Amazon and all those kind of things. And um, you know, th- I think everyone was really understanding and really appreciative that we just kind of stayed to the plan and just released it on that date. Did it come out uh, globally as well? Yeah, I think there was a couple things that maybe from what I saw, maybe like in like in France, I think like the CDs are coming out. Uh, they were they were delayed for some reason, like maybe coming out this week or next. But for the most part, it was all at the same time. And it seems like everyone's gotten their uh, like all the bundles and stuff that we sold on the web store. They got them all on time. And so, it, I mean, I guess, you know, the first couple of weeks when everything was kind of starting to look like it was going to shut down a lot more. I think everyone was preparing for the worst and it seemed like at least with the supply chain stuff, it hasn't been as dire as originally thought, you know, at least when it comes to like getting CDs and stuff like that. So, you know, I guess we, we just kind of made the gamble with it and it seems like it worked out so far. Has uh, there been any update with regards to the summer tour with Megadeth and Lamb of God? Um, yeah, we're, we're kind of waiting to see what like live nation uh, says about that officially. Uh, I like today I read, um, I think it was in like variety and I think metal sucks, uh, put it up there was like the main dude was kind of telling all the shareholders and stuff like what the plan is. And I mean, by the sounds of it, I don't think it's going to be happening, uh, on the schedule. Um, I think it'll get pushed into some point. I don't really know what, what the holdup for telling people is about that kind of stuff, but You know, it's kind of out of our hands for telling people. I just don't think so. Just the reality of the situation. And I don't even know what what a social distancing at a show look like. You know what? (laughs) I I feel like there's not a lot of like real definitive answers on like the health side of things. So I feel like it'd be really risky to try to ask people to come to a show. And who knows even with all the liability that that would bring. I have no idea. I feel like that's like live nation answers that need to be said. <laughs> yeah. I don't think it's a live nation thing though. I think it, it's a, uh, yeah. a basically a state regulation. Thing. Oh yeah. So yeah. basically you have, you have a tour and California, for example, is saying mm-hmm. they're, you know, they might not have any shows this year, you mm-hmm. know, in California, but other States are opening. Missouri just started having shows this week. Yeah. So I, so I think it really has to do with, okay. These, a lot of these venues would open if the law said they could, you know, if they yeah. were allowed to open. So, you know, we're in the same boat because we're, we have a tour with Disturbed and Stained basically mm-hmm. doing oh, yeah, the yeah, same that's right. run that you guys are doing. Um, and, you know, I I haven't heard, heard anything, but I feel mm-hmm. like with some of these bigger tours, it's probably in their best interest to probably postpone it rather than flat out yeah. cancel. I mean, those are like big tours that like are priority tours. So, like, I don't think Live Nation would be like, okay, well, we're just going to cancel it and kind of throw this in the trash. You know, like there's 60 shows that were booked. Uh, and obviously people were super stoked. Cause like when it went on sale, the tickets were like flying right away. And so I think if the worst case scenario it gets moved, then I mean, there's really nothing we could do about it. I feel like we'll be touring overseas before we tour in the States. So that's like my prediction is I think 
you know, touring maybe this year is going to be scrapped. Who knows? You know, maybe maybe it'll open up on a smaller scale and like smaller shows can maybe go on. But I don't know what national or international band is going to come to the States and play like, you know, one show in Arkansas and maybe somewhere else. I don't think that's possible. <laughs> yeah, but that's that, that's what I'm saying. So I think there's just some yeah. in, inconsistencies there. But um, yeah, I don't know. It's It's been a, a really... Like I said, this is this is one of these things that we'll you know we'll look back you know in ten yeah. twenty years it's like this thing that changed the world kind of like how nine eleven was where it's like you have your yeah pre nine eleven world and, and yeah. post nine eleven world I'm, and I mean this is even even bigger in some ways well, I mean because I think in, you know? I think it's bigger in every way I mean yeah I mean the after nine eleven like the economy didn't shut down you know you had like Bush telling people to go to like the mall yeah so this is like. I mean, I don't know if like the whole open up thing is kind of a weird scenario because it's like you can open things up, but that doesn't mean people are going to go. And so, like, you know, if you're forcing uh, stores to open back up before customers are ready, you're kind of putting them in a, a weird uh, scenario there where it's like, OK, well, we're opened up and you know, we're paying rent or whatever on our place and customers aren't coming back. So what do we do now? And. I think that's the same with shows. Like, I don't think you can be like, okay, the tour is back on, but what is the confidence for people coming back? And obviously a lot of people are out of work right now. I don't know if going to a show and like spending a lot of money on merch and stuff is going to be a possibility for people for a bit. So I think it's the exact opposite. I think pretty much everything, dude, even the weekend yeah. before they shut down everything in LA, um, everything was busy. You know, people, yeah. people were out. I, I think there's, you know, there, there's the type of person who's who's watching news all day and absorbing mm -hmm. stuff and really attuned to it. But I think there's also the opposite person who thinks it's all a hoax um, mm. and is like, oh, it's just, you know, they're just hyping it up and it's, it's a conspiracy. Yeah. So I think there's that group. And then there's think there's a big group in the middle that's kind of like they're just tired of being, being cooped up. Oh, totally. And, and they just want to get back to normal. So... I think as long as it, people are allowed, I think for the most part, all these yeah. businesses will be well attended enough, you know, especially if it's a situation, right? Like if you bought four tickets to a show, you know, six months ago mm -hmm. and you spent that money and the show is happening, your ass is going to go. <laughs> yeah. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. So, you know, so I think for a lot of tours like that where they've been on sale for, for a while. I yeah. think I think people are going to go because there's the problem something like this is there's no half way to do it right either yeah either everything's allowed or nothing's allowed you know but I think mm -hmm. as long as people are I I truly think is think about this right you had uh, situations you know where what was it like Death Angel and Testament and a bunch of guys got sick but not everyone mm -hmm. got sick which tells yeah. me and those are people living together sharing the same space. And like we even think maybe our drummer <laughs> might have had it because we were in yeah. Milan like two weeks before all the shit went down. Oh yeah, totally. and he got really sick, but no one else got sick. So I'm like, I think as long as everyone's not, because now we're all conditioned, right? To like, okay, mm -hmm. don't touch people. Yeah, you know, maybe go to show, shows, but everyone's still wearing masks. Yeah, I think that'll be a a must. I I know you know a lot of people maybe at least here in the States might not like the concept of that, but I'm like, if the difference is like shows happening and not like if, if it's at least possible for things to happen and if people just like have to wear masks and there's like a little bit of a, whatever sort of social distancing that can happen for a show, I don't know how that would work in a club, but maybe in the bigger venues it can work. 
I mean, I, I feel like it's it's a worthy trade off, you know, to have things happen again. And at least, I mean, if things are starting to somewhat open, we're going to find out what happens. I'm like, you know, if, if things get worse again, then well, they who knows gonna where get, it's going to be. They are going to get worse yeah, again. I, you know, I, it's really I just really think do. it's a, uh, you know, it's a situation where essentially it's a devil's bargain. Where people are going to be like, mm-hmm. well, people are just going to have to die. And yeah. And the problem with that is that's there's no good way of saying that. So people, they're so they're not really honest about it. Which is which is my yeah. problem. My problem is if you're gonna say that, okay, but just own it and 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 yeah. kind of. But it's a very difficult thing to say that hey, we need to do this thing. We need to open things up because the economy is bad and people are hurting, and that's mm-hmm. hurting people in one way, yeah. which is totally true. But mm-hmm. then if we do it this other way, we're literally, you know, hundreds of thousands of people are gonna die, and it. You know, and it's it's just and and you know and, and then our our healthcare systems, you know, yeah. The real potential I mean, does that not? Uh, <laughs> I mean, it could end up the economy gets kind of screwed either way. I mean, it's you look at other countries. I mean, like I said, I think we'll be touring overseas probably sooner than in the states, and it's probably going to be. I don't I don't even know how that's going to work because I'm sure like coming from the states, like a lot of places are going to be like, okay, well, you're going to have like tests and like prove that you're not sick and stuff I, I saw even in like the airport in vienna they were doing like two three hour testing for people landing as a way to get out of um like you were having to quarantine if you for landed there days. for like 14 days yeah. and then this was a way to kind of like bypass that with doing the test and so i'm, I'm assuming that's going to be the norm for quite a while and I mean, there's going to have to be some sort of plan in place, but here, I don't know. It seems like it's kind of like everyone do your own plan and see what works. And well, I don't know how you could plan a a nationwide tour or anything around that. Because, I mean, a band is like such a different thing than like opening a store in one city. It's we have to go to every state. And so we're going to have to kind of work around whatever the state's um, scenario is. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing is we're really like. Uh, you know, uh, co- we're like 10 different countries yeah. basically in, in one and, and people, obviously there's a big, you know, kind of mindset around states rights and, and kind of being able, which mm-hmm. I, I totally get, but it's, then it makes it difficult to actually, if you have a problem like this, that doesn't respect borders yeah, <laughs> that, you know, it, it's, it has that. Cause you're seeing now, like I was looking at some of the stuff where all the places it's rising is in like these smaller towns because, mm-hmm. The cities have pretty much locked down, but a lot yeah. of these smaller areas, they felt like, oh, well, it's not really affecting us. And they, a lot of their stuff yeah. was open. So it's, uh, it'll be interesting, you know? Yeah. You got like a lot of the, um, the meatpacking plants and stuff where people are all kind of tightly, uh, packed into these processing places and, you know, it's kind of just ripping through them. And, you know, that's obviously going to have a lot of other problems with just like, oh, the, the food supply chain and all that kind of stuff. And, I don't know. It's kind of hard to say. I, I mean, it kind of feels like we're just like on a, <laughs> a death. It's like kind of a death drive uh, with things kind of just like, OK, well, we're re- reopening this month or next month and we're going to see what happens. And it just seems like there's not enough information. So like everyone's kind of making these choices based off of different things and no one seems to agree on it. So it's kind of a weird uh, it's a weird spot to be in. And it just feels like touring, like for this year, just doesn't seem like in the states at least. I don't know if it's possible. It, and it sounds like from what I was reading with the the dude from Live Nation, the main guy, it's they're kind of like thinking that as well. Where 
they're not thinking till like at least quarter three or four of next year having full scale shows, like maybe trying to test the waters with smaller things and like remote shows like via the internet or whatever, but who knows what it's going to be and how do you, the whole thing with even doing shows on the internet, it's like you can do one big event, but how do you replace doing like 50 or 60 shows? Like the the money doesn't even, doesn't add up there. Well, I don't, I, I don't think that's any kind of real, um, solution. I think, Shows are shows, and you can't replace yeah. that. And I have a very hard time. I've heard I've heard estimates like that, but I have a very difficult time seeing like how does Live yeah. Nation stay in business till next year? Yeah, I, I mean that's you know. kind of the thing. I mean, obviously, this is going to like crush like local venues and promoters, and of course, like smaller acts that are like just starting. I mean, I don't even know how. I, like, I try to put like myself in like my shoes back like coming uh off of ascendancy like how would we have weathered that i don't even know you well, know if I, we were a small I, band again that would have been here's, really difficult here's where i look at it I, I say it's everything's on pause like i look at a band like bad mm-hmm. wolves that had all this momentum like where it felt things were just growing 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 every tour we do things get better every everything was kind of moving up and it feels like man we just we got stopped in our tracks but i'm like well no mm-hmm. everyone got stopped so, yeah. So it's just on pause. I mean, if we've lost momentum, that means everyone else everyone. who was on the rise lost momentum. So we're all just. So I think now, like Bad Wolves, for example, we started this Patreon page mm-hmm. where you know we're funneling all this content through there and kind of sh- and strengthening kind of the connection with the fans. And, and to me, as long as you're using this time wisely to actually yeah. say, okay, how can we connect with people? How can we, um, you know create stuff that that builds the audience and strengthens the bond you already have with your audience you can actually make a lot of headway you know and us for example like mm-hmm. we were already thinking about doing some writing but now it's like well we're just gonna write the new album yeah you know definitely makes sense and so i mean i guess luckily the internet uh exists in a way that that can be done because if this happened like 10 years ago where you couldn't stream anything and making content was like a real real like kind of like a lot of work to to make you know thinking about like people making documentaries and stuff and like now you can really do everything from your house so yeah in some ways that's kind of a i guess you could say a positive at least there's like a sort of a platform for all these things and different ways you could do it you know but obviously if you're not like uh if you're not an established band or like you haven't had that like you guys had the the big hit and like the momentum going like if you're a band that doesn't have that yet i'm like that's this is kind of a bad scenario because it's kind of hard to i think it's hard to build up from just you know getting on the internet and like starting to stream your shows and stuff if you don't have that sort of built-in thing i don't know how you'd have to be very creative with it you know and i guess maybe that's going to be what it takes it's like some bands or people are going to break out from this that they you know from being creative with how they get out when they can't tour or do things yeah i mean i i I definitely see that but i I think if you're an up-and-coming band it's I don't think your world has changed that much, right? Mm-hmm. Because I think unless say let's say you're a young man, you get some very mm-hmm. DIY tour where you're going out and you're playing in front of fifty people a night, mm-hmm. I think in some respects that hurts young bands. You know, they're spending more money than they're making and the, the yeah. amount of exposure doesn't really come back. So I think in the age of like the bands that have gotten some notoriety on on social media on the internet before touring, it's always been about 
how do you get attention? How do you stick mm-hmm. stand out from the pack? And how do you, and that's always been tough, you know? So I think it's just, uh, you know, if you were working just a n- more normal job and your band was almost, I'd say like a hobby or a weekend kind of thing, your life probably hasn't changed that much. You know, I mm-hmm. think it's actually harder for established bands where it's like, if they don't tour, they don't eat. Then, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. That, was, that kind of mid, uh, mid-level, mid middle-class band, I think is probably hurting more because maybe they didn't yeah. have a side job and that, you know, so, but well, a lot of side jobs are like on, on ice as well. And exactly. Like, that's that's the I'm big saying. problem for like crew guys right now. You know, I, I feel like a lot of the guys that work for us, you know, a lot of their jobs at home were like some of the first things to get kind of put on hold, like working at a club or mm-hmm. something like that. So, you know, there was nothing to really fall back on. Uh, like when we pulled the plug on the Asian tour, it was just like, it felt terrible because it's like, you know, you're taking money away from people, um, you know, people you're friends with and just like, you know, you're, they depend on you and you're touring. And it's just like such a bad situation because you pull plug on a tour and that really has ripple effects in the whole industry. And, you know, not just bands, but the people at venues, the bartenders, uh, people working security. I mean, it's a real just the the economy of like uh, live industry, especially over the last like ten years, it's like grown so much. And yeah. you know, Live Nation, AEG, I mean, they're like the juggernaut uh, promotion companies. But I feel like even like on a smaller level, like just live shows were just like really getting into a whole new level of like uh, I guess you know popularity and people just wanting to go to shows. So hopefully it can bounce back, but we'll see. You know, it really is going to come down to people's. Um, feelings with being in a crowded place again and we'll see and like i said you said it's like maybe being cooped up people are just gonna be like you know screw it let's just see what happens i want to be outside i want to do things and let's just see what happens and i guess that's the route we're going now so we'll see how people feel about it because i know they opened the beaches in orange county and yeah it was packed, you know, like, so I think people are yeah. definitely looking, looking to do things, but we'll, we'll see what happens. Just cross <clears throat> all, way I look at it is like, there's really not much control I personally have or, or, or yeah. we have. So you can just kind of work on what, what you can work on. And I'm personally mm-hmm. myself, I'm busier than I've ever been. I'm cause you know, cause I just do so many different things and it's like, to me every day, it's like, okay, what's the opportunity that I can work on this or what can I work on this? So, and, yeah. and I get it. Everyone doesn't, you know, isn't someone that necessarily works from home or, you know, kind of has that kind of way to work. But in that respect, I, I think I'm trying to utilize the time, you know? So. Oh yeah. I mean, it's definitely a luxury to have this kind of time to be at home, uh, you know, when we're also used to touring and of course having the ability to like do stuff like this, work on new music and, or, you know, obviously like with Matt and Alex doing Twitch and different things like that. And, you know, I'm even like considering just starting to do like bass lessons just because I have the time yeah. just for fun, you know, just to like, you know, fill up the space with something constructive. So trying to make the best of it. Have they been uh, killing you guys with press because the album obviously just came mm. out? Is it and you were supposed to do this press tour? Has yeah. it just been like a barrage all day, every day? You're just doing interviews? Yeah, I mean, we, we definitely split it up uh, between... Uh, all four of us, you know, obviously getting Alex more into it as well. So we kind of spread it out a bit. Um, I'd say at least like two to three every day or more, like leading up to the album release. And like now it's kind of tapered off. I'll have a few here and there. So now that that's kind of like getting, we're kind of past the press point of it. It's like figuring out what to do 
with our time and stuff from there. So I'm sure there's still going to be some more press. And we're also thinking about what we're going to do. Um, of course, if the summer tour uh, gets pulled or whatever and gets moved, we're definitely going to be doing some other stuff and kind of planning that out right now just in case. Yeah, well, wait for the X-Man bump. You know, once this comes yeah. out and get that spike in sales, it's going to be real oh, nice, yeah. you know. Yeah, yeah, you know, you definitely, go, man. Go get some order some TGI Fridays to go, you know. <laughs> The whole band, though. Whole band. Yeah, right? yeah. Well, maybe Chili's will be back open. And we'll get those two for ones again. <laughs> Love the two for one. Um, so I actually wanted to talk a little bit about, actually, a lot of bit about <clears throat> back in the day and oh, how yeah. we how we all met because it's it's so interesting how different bands' uh, lives are kind of just uh, interconnected and interwoven. Mm-hmm. And and you're one of those bands with, especially with with God forbid, how we. You know, we met you because you were singing and playing bass for a band called Metal Militia. Yeah, local band, Fort uh, Lauderdale. At, at the uh, Culture Room, it was a tour in 2001 mm-hmm. with Diecast, and yeah. you were just a local band. And I still have the demo CD. And, I saw like the flyer of that show, I think. <laughs> but <laughs> but the thing is, it was you know from you know t- talking to the people who are, who are listening to this. You know, you look to be about 10 years old and the band, like it was called Metal Militia and it basically yeah. sounded like that. It sounded like Kill em All, Era Metallica. Yeah. And we were like just blown away and we we're like, this is the sickest shit we've ever seen. <laughs> There's like these children up there sounding like fucking, thra- they're just thrashing it up. So like, it was like fucking cool. H- how old were you at the time? Um, When was that? You said 2001? Yes. Yeah, like, I want to say early like like maybe february or something like that yeah i feel like i saw you guys before then too so probably like 15 16 around then yeah, but, um but you looked even younger though oh yeah yeah <laughs> and you know obviously like the the culture room was like uh i mean that was really like one of the only places that got like consistent concerts i feel like there'd be like a place that would open up here and there and then it would shut down but like there was just so many shows coming through and the, the owner, Greg, who I think still probably owns it, like he would just have like there'd be death metal shows there, hardcore shows. And like I didn't really even know a lot of stuff. I would just go to shows like if I saw the flyer, like, oh, here's a maybe I know this one band or this looks interesting. I would just kind of go and see it. And, you know, obviously that's how pretty much found out uh, about you guys, like probably maybe discovered you on one of those um I don't know, one of the sampler CDs that like the labels used to kind of send out and stuff like that. And, uh, you know, people were still street teaming then. So like I'd go to a show and they'd get out a flyer and like maybe a CD and like, you'd be like, Oh, this is pretty badass. I'm going to come see this band when they come through. And that was definitely like some of the most formative years for me because I didn't really like, I never saw like Metallica shows and stuff. Like, I feel like I just kind of like would always either miss it because I wasn't there or for whatever reason. And so like, a lot of the shows I saw were like the smaller, like death metal, hardcore metal shows that would come through culture room. And, you know, you'd, you'd find a band and like, you just wait for them to come back through. And it was, uh, it was fun because like being in a local band when I was younger, it was like definitely trickier to get shows and stuff, but it was like a big learning experience, you know, like trying to get booked on something, playing with bands that are like touring and vans and stuff it was uh it was cool to be around it was like super exciting and you know when you guys uh let us open for you it was like amazing we were just so stoked and 
it, it was awesome, man. Like that was like a really great memory, you know, playing those shows and then following you guys through the years. And then eventually like being able to tour together, it's just like kind of wild how that happened. Well, I mean, it, it totally is. Um, uh, was culture in one of those venues where you had to like sell tickets? Yeah, to- I think, um, some shows, I, I don't know if every show was, but I feel like most of them, they'd be like, you gotta, I, I don't know if they would be like, you have to sell this many, but they would give you tickets to yeah. sell. And I think that definitely, if you were selling tickets, I mean, that would help you to get your own shows, which that was kind of the goal was you'd open up shows, but you'd also want to be able to do your own at some point. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I think it's, it's, it tells you so much just about how much the different scenes worked is like, mm-hmm. God forbid, the main reason we ended up getting into the hardcore scene was that we got sick of the selling tickets kind of thing because it, yeah. after a while, it's, you know, we did a couple shows like we opened for, uh, Exodus and then Morbid Angel. And then we did one with the Bad Brains and it was cool. Cause you know, you get to play in front of a bigger audience, but it just mm-hmm. started to feel like a racket, you know? And yeah. we wanted to, and that was like the, the difference between that kind of club world and like the DIY kind of hardcore scene. Um, and so that's in it, you know, and ultimately that ended up shaping the band sound and kind of aesthetic and, yeah, definitely. and, and uh, philosophy, you know, but um, so I, I almost got the feeling with, with that area, like there was there like even a DIY scene or was it mainly you could only play the clubs? Yeah. I, I feel like we missed the, uh, the hardcore scene at that point. I mean, I don't think we would have fit with what we were playing, but you had like Poison the Well, yeah, which was like kind of a the big band from South Florida that was in that sort of, I guess, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like that kind of like Florida hardcore scene was definitely, probably around then was definitely kind of like a big thing. And some of those bands were putting out like their, you know, their classic records at that point, but we didn't really have any connection with it. I didn't know anyone in that. I feel like a lot of those bands were maybe a few years older. So mm-hmm. for whatever reason, there was just like no connections there. And again, like some of the clubs they played, I think the one in South Florida was called like club Q. It was like a billiards hall. And that was a big one. And I was trying to get shows there, but then it like, maybe it shut or something. And I mean, you know, for a, a local scene, like a venue shutting is like pretty disastrous. You know, you have like uh don't have a lot of options and there was a point where culture room almost had like either was gonna have to shut down or it was going to not be able to have all ages shows and like i remember like being a part of the effort to try to like make sure that the city didn't do that because i mean you'd be screwed and so many so many people going to shows are younger you know kind of screw a, a venue over and of course you know when you're a band and you're like going through places and it's like oh it's 21 over i mean that kind of sucks in a way you know you're leaving a lot of fans out of your your shows and if you're a local band especially when you're in like high school like were your friends gonna like not be able to come i mean this would be pointless did you ever play the brass mug in tampa yeah i definitely i feel like we did it i did that once um i played a few places in tampa and actually one of the the shows one of the last shows i played in with metal militia where we played uh with trivium on the bill and this is when Corey was in the band. It was a it's called Sun and Steel Festival. It, the dude that did the Milwaukee Metal Fest did a festival down there. Only one year. Uh, obviously, didn't do well enough for any more after that. But um, yeah, so Trivium was on the bill, and that was actually 
right before the tour they were about to do with you guys before yeah. I was in the band. It was like literally a few months from that. So we we had played a few shows together and kind of had connections through there, which I feel like, you know, obviously doing those shows and then me meeting Jason Sukoff, that was kind of like the the final uh, connection between us that kind of set us up for their like coming together at some point. So what is it? How did you, how did you meet Jason? Um, I was playing, there was, there was this place, uh, this business called classic cases that some people probably know oh, about. Yeah, like we, they, we they made all, yeah, big, big, super heavy, but I mean, they could probably survive a nuclear war. They were super, <laughs> super big. Um, uh, but they had like a, a venue in there and they had a few of the guys had their own band and I somehow got onto this to this show and that was up in Sanford where uh, audio hammers at and so went up to play the show you know it wasn't like a lot of people there it was like literally playing at this like a uh, classic case warehouse manufacturing thing uh, but Jason was there and you know Jason obviously like when he's in a room I mean his personality definitely <laughs> like takes up like the entire room I mean he is amazing and over the top and of course like I hit it off with him, you know, he's an awesome dude. And he invited me over to audio hammer. Uh, at that time, my, my mom was, uh, bringing me around, you know, by, uh, by the car, you know, like she had to drive me places. So we went over to audio hammer and he showed me Ember to Inferno before it had come out. He showed me the demos like the trivium had done. And so that was kind of like my, uh, connection with the band you know, besides like meeting them at some shows that we had played together. And, you know, I, I did some demos with uh, Jason, some of the last Metal Militia stuff, like the last version of that band. And then it was kind of like once kind of felt like I felt, you know, the band had kind of run its course. And it was like I was graduating high school and it was kind of like, OK, I'm either going to college or I'm going to kind of try to find some other thing to get into and maybe give it one last go and trivium at the time, you know, the original bass player, Brent, he didn't, I don't think he liked touring or whatever. And so he had left and they had another fill in that didn't really work out. And it was like literally the craziest timing for all of that, but it was meeting them and meeting Jason was a big part of it. Yeah. Jason was how, uh, I discovered trivium. Cause same thing. He was sending us like, uh, tracks from Ember yeah. and, um, <clears throat> And and obviously you, it was it was very clear that there was something there, you know, like mm -hmm. okay, this is uh, you know, but he was he was psyched on it, and, he, and, it was, and we were always like that. I felt like there was, you know, in the early days of the internet, like you would just meet random people in like mm -hmm. a, a chat room or something. Yeah, and I, I think that's literally how I think my brother was in like a metal chat room and met Jason and. <laughs> You know, was it like those old AIM chat rooms? Yeah, like, yeah, those oh, AOL man. stuff. And uh, I think we, we met a lot of people on there. It was fucking weird. <laughs> yeah, that's. I didn't even think about that. Like, there probably was those. I probably should have been in those, like, trying to find people. But it's kind of crazy how, like, obviously there's, like, new versions of that. But, like, that was, like, a pretty big thing. Like, those chat rooms and, like, forums back then. You could really find a lot of people. And it's amazing how the connections even – in the early state of the internet, that kind of was really helping people to connect. Well, I think in the mid, you know, that mid kind of nineties or into the late nineties, when I was really getting into, especially, you know, extreme and heavier stuff, mm -hmm. it was just, 
harder to like physically find people around you, you know? So it's like, I want to talk about, you know, cynic and suffocation with someone I need, I need to like go on the internet and find some nerd (laughs) halfway across, (laughs) across the world who actually knows, you know, fucking emperor and, you know, Meshuggah and stuff, you know, cause about, you know, just the, the, and I, and I think now it's like, no matter what weird thing you're into, there's an internet community for oh, it. Oh, totally. Uh, but, you know, that was just kind of burgeoning at that, at that time. But, um, but yeah, so, so you ended up, and I, I just remember now, I was like, oh yeah, the, the first, so God forbid took Trivium on their first tour, but I was like, you weren't there. It was Brent was no. still in the band. Yeah. And I just remembered that. I was like, oh shit. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I can't even crazy. talk about the, the those stories. Yeah. It's kind of like, <laughs> With it's, you it's always crazy. You know, it's like, you'll meet people that were at those shows and I'm like, wow, man, like you were, you were here before I was. It's like crazy. Like quite a few people too. Like you'll go, go through and it'll be like, I was at the show, you know, with God forbid and or at the show with iced earth. And it, it's just wild. Like when people have like really stuck with us that long, like they, they literally, were into Trivium before I was literally in Trivium. It's crazy. Well, that well that tour has come up on this show before because you know I had uh, your good friend <laughs> Phil Labonte on the show, um, your best friend, yeah. um, old friend. You know, you, you know, bosom buddies. Uh, no, but all the remains was on that on that tour yeah. as well. And it was this this thing where there was like you know behind the scenes stuff with the booking agents because Tim Bor oh, put, yeah. put, the, put the tour together and. The first date, I guess, Trivium was supposed to be playing like over. Uh, oh yeah, um, all our mains, or <laughs> or maybe it was like a flip flop thing. But they were pissed off, which which deservedly so because they had been yeah. more established. But this is all. Like, I feel like pop- that's a theme through our early careers with like touring stuff. Like it's kind of funny now because really, when you look at a lot of tours where the most drama happens with like lineups, it's really it didn't matter who played when yeah. because what's ego. Yeah, but it's you know I understand like with that stuff. Like well, I think it's different. It's funny because I was I was listening to Matt on my buddy Finn McKenty's podcast, the Punk Rock NBA, and mm-hmm. a few times he kind of he was he, he like went out of his way to say he's like yeah we're not a we're not a band's band like this yeah. like a band that other bands like which I don't know if that's necessarily true, but I think it has. I think you guys just got scarred in your yeah. first few years because <laughs> what. You know, that thing with all that means on that tour, at least, it was about these guys are like grown men. And then these kids show up who are like 18, yeah. 19 years old. And and then you kind of, you know, you already have a deal with Roadrunner. And mm-hmm. I think in, in in many ways, and, you know, and kind of take this how, how it is, I re- like if it wasn't for all the work, us and Shadows Fall and, yeah. and, and mm-hmm. all those bands, we when we came out, there was no scene for what we did. And within the few years of us kind of grinding out and building up, then we created this scene. It's like, and in a way, Trivium got to like walk on that ground that wasn't yeah. there. And it, and it gave you guys an advantage. And that just, you know, it, it makes people who've been like grinding out, sleeping on floors totally. and bands, it makes them bitter and jealous, you know, and you guys are really good. And I think then that was the other thing. I mean, I remember on that first tour, the band was already like super polished and it was yeah. like, it was just weird. You just didn't, you just never saw that. You know, well, that was like, you know, obviously Trivium and then parallel to that, my own local band, like we had been playing for so long. Like I did Metal Militia for like six years, which is like, I don't know, like a, to kind of keep a local band going 
that long. And of course I it went through different lineups and I played with a ton of people, but to kind of keep this consistent thing going, um, obviously not the same as touring in a van and like going out and like kind of, kind of roughing it with that and playing, you know, some shows where like, Oh, there's like no one there, but like, you know, having to do the local shows, having to practice, like there was definitely like a work ethic, at least with our band, like metal militia. And then I feel like trivium was definitely in the same thing. And when we had played shows together, it was kind of weird. Like, Oh wait, there's this other band of like dudes that are about my age and you know, we weren't really exactly the same. I definitely feel like metal militia was kind of more thrashy type thing, but like doing similar stuff. It, it was just like, you didn't really run into that a lot. And it was just weird that we were doing similar things, different parts of the state at exact same time. And then of course, like, you know, finding out about like all these new bands coming out, like God forbid and all this stuff. It was kind of this, like, I, I just remember for a few years being like, wow, I feel really out of place. It's like, we're playing thrash and there's like only new metal bands. And then all of a sudden out of nowhere, there's like bands like God forbid shadows fall kill switch and stuff that I, you know, obviously have no idea about all these scenes that were kind of going on for years and years up, up in the Northeast or wherever bands were coming from. And it was just like, Oh shit. Like there's bands with solos and super heavy and they're screaming. Like it just seemed like out of nowhere, this thing kind of popped up. And I mean, of course, trivium, um, you know, working with Jason with the Ember to Inferno. And then finally, when we got into the studio to do ascendancy, it was just like right at that perfect time, you know, and, and some, that's just really a lot of things are it's just timing, you know, it's, it's so many bands are like kind of doing a thing and then you just, ha you hit it at that right point that you could never anticipate. Like we couldn't have like planned everything the way it worked out with ascendancy and how it would go. But you know, like the labels definitely felt something was coming. You know, they definitely knew, okay, well, people are into this kind of stuff. And the first few bands to come out are really reacting with people. And then they start signing bands like us and everyone else that kind of got picked up at that point. And it really, from there, you know, everything goes into overdrive. Then you have Ozfest and all that stuff kind of really getting people out to so many people that you would have never had the opportunity to be in front of before. And it, kind of crazy how a lot of that stuff works with the with the timing of things no i think you're you're 100 right timing is everything and also there's the right collection of everything because the thing is it's like you can have the right timing but if it's if you don't have mm -hmm. the right album if you don't have yeah, the right totally image if you don't have all these things that kind of align um so you would join the band before you were they, they recorded ascendancy yeah it was uh my first tour was August 2004. Uh, it was the Road Rage tour with Machine Head and Chimera. They were co-headlining. Uh, Three Inches of Blood was supposed to be on that, and I can't remember why they weren't they weren't able to do it. So it was just us opening. So it was like a three-band bill, and it was it was a pretty good know, crazy tour. tour. Yeah, I mean, again, like it, a lot of it's luck, you know. Like I could have joined later, you know, I maybe wouldn't have been on Ascendancy, and I don't know how things work out or whatever, but just the timing of, and everything like that really worked out perfectly for me. And I mean, that tour was incredible. You know, I think machine head was kind of, they did, uh, through the ashes, the empire was like coming out or it was already out. And I mean, they were kind of on the upswing again, machine head. And then, I mean, chimera was like at a real peak at that point and they yeah. were so good live, you know, watching both those bands like kill it every night. I mean, talk about like 
that was like uh, that was like my freshman year of college, you know, getting to watch these two bands just crush it and being like learning so much about how like touring works, how about like, you know, like sound checks and load ins and like kind of the unwritten rules of how things work, you know, on tour with like crews and stuff. And it was like a lot to take in, but it was so fun. And the end of that tour, they asked me to to stay in the band. And I feel like like a couple weeks later, we were doing pre-pro for Ascendancy. And a lot of the songs that would end up on Ascendancy, we played on that tour, but they were like um, like the pre-production version. They were like different choruses and stuff. Mm-hmm. And actually, a funny story from that. Um, remember the tech G-Money, I think his name was? Yeah. Worked with, uh, Machine, with Machine Head. Head. And I remember, like, because we were playing Pool Harder on that tour, but it was a lot different. It had a different chorus. And I remember him saying, like, you know, how good the song was, but that it, it should probably have, like, a better chorus or, like, the chorus wasn't good or something. It was just, like, really random, like, comment like that. Now, I'm sure probably at the time we were like, what the hell is this dude talking about? But we <laughs> ended up changing the chorus, and it was way, way better after that and just kind of a, a really random thing. I'd be interested for people that went to that show if they even remember how the song sounded back then because once it went through pre-pro, a lot of things changed. Well, I'm sure there's, you know – some footage somewhere sitting in someone's closet, you know? Yeah. I'd be curious to see. I've seen a couple like old shows. Like it's amazing that people could even like get that from like an old, like uh disc tape or whatever they were like filming on over to, uh, to YouTube. But there's a couple out there. No, no, no doubt. Well, the thing about ascendancy is <clears throat> it's one of the few albums, you know, even though it's technically the band's, <laughs> Uh, second album, you know, I, mm-hmm. a lot of times, you know, we consider kind of their first major release or major label release mm-hmm. um, as the first first album, but it's the fir- it's the first album to most of the fans who are mm-hmm. who, who discovered the band that it you know just exploded almost immediately, you know, and it and it became this thing, and it's just it it just doesn't happen that often in in heavy music, you know, every now you'll get like a you know appetite for destruction or a never mind or something like that um but did you know did you guys feel that it had that potential when you were making it um i mean it, definitely like going through making it and stuff getting the final version like you know we were all super stoked at how it sounded um but i definitely think within our band and our management and the label there was like I think we kind of all were like, you know, this could take a bit. This could take a few records to kind of really establish things because, I mean, that's really how it was for most bands. It's you kind of make a few records and you kind of start to get that momentum going. Um, But you never anticipate, like, how something is going to respond or where it will respond, like how things work out. And it just so happened that the first touring that we were going to be doing – with the record release was over in the UK and Europe on the road rage tour there. And, you know, just the timing of all those things. And like, we had no idea that like the record was getting really rave reviews before we went over and like how that was going to just really momentum. Cause like the first show we did there was in like Wolverhampton and it was wild. Like we had never experienced a show like that. Like we'd had good shows at that point, maybe on a couple tours opening, but like where people were literally like losing their shit and like, like feeling like, wow, this is this is something else. This is something way more than we anticipated. And I mean, I don't think you can ever really 
like anticipate that kind of stuff. Uh, you, you make the best music you can, but I mean, over the years of even all the records we've done, you never know how it's going to respond with people. And again, the timing and luck is, is a big factor in that. Yeah. I mean, it's just a, it's an interesting thing because like I said, there's this, this theme with, with you guys where, you know, you get all this attention it it really takes off, and like I said, that creates this uh, this jealousy, you know, about yeah. where where or this tension of like, oh well, this band's only getting this because of this thing, or it's because they're getting hooked mm-hmm. up over here, or you know, and and I think that's that is a real thing about the band being so young, and a lot of people are like, well, they didn't pay their dues, and, yeah. and it probably created a lot of tension, and especially when you're leapfrogging bands that have been around for. For a long time that just creates you know uh, a certain a certain thing and i and you know I, and i wonder you know if when you guys were kind of in that you know it was i remember we, we did the tour <clears throat> the uk tour at the end mm-hmm. of the ascendancy cycle and it, it almost felt like when we were touring like like it almost like seemed like you guys were relieved to like be touring with a band where there wasn't tension <laughs> Yeah, you know, I, I mean, we were just like because we were just happy to get the tour because you know we were you know we were you that know. was the second tour with for Ascendancy two I think or the second headlining tour right yeah. it was like a March and that was with um, Blood Simple was on that I think part of it and then Men Mendeed yeah and then, yeah I mean because that was like we had done a few tours and we had been back in the states and stuff so like I guess we were just kind of used to like it, it was kind of a weird. Uh, a weird thing with like, uh, you know, going out and, you know, having these great experiences like in the UK, we were like, at that point we're headlining, we're selling out shows and then to kind of come back to the States and, you know, back to supporting and definitely having to kind of deal with like a sort of the backlash of just being successful with the record. I mean, successful is like kind of a relative term. I mean, it was not like we were like, like loaded or something after like making ascendancy. But like in terms of just like we are everywhere, we're on every kind of tour, uh, magazines are seeing really crazy headlines and stuff about like, you know, we're the, the saviors of like metal and stuff. Well, I'll, you know, I'll say and the that, cover. Here's what it said. It said, it said, I think it said Iron Maiden. Yeah. What was it Metall- Sabbath? Metallica Iron Maiden, first, Metallica, right? now Trivium. Yeah. yeah. That was the first Kerrang cover, you know, that's yeah. a very, I mean, of course, like, you know, the, the British press is like very sensational with stuff like that. So like, you know, a lot of people seeing that and, you know, I think that definitely colored how people like viewed our band and even heard maybe ascendancy at the time. Um, I mean, obviously people were loving it and we were doing great with like shows, especially over in the UK. Um, but of course that kind of like shapes people's opinions and those kind of opinions last a lot longer. And, you know, I think it, Maybe some bands took that to heart when uh, they were touring with us and stuff. So maybe, you know, it was definitely difficult, um, but it's like stuff you kind of just make it through. You either like want to do it or you don't, you know, and you let that stuff kind of roll off your shoulders or you or you let it get to you. And I mean, definitely coming off of Ascendancy and going into the Crusade, I think we definitely felt like uh, some of that stuff. I think we kind of like worried about a lot of stuff of what people said about us too much and. You get in your own head with like what you're going to write and do and it's just a mistake, you know, but you have to kind of, I think you have to live through it. You have to go through those things to kind of learn how to deal with it and overcome them. 
if like if you could have it either way, would you want that kind of attention or, or a headline like that? Or would mm-hmm. you if you could do it, would you rather almost have less less hype and kind of have it be a little more uh, organic? I, I mean, I, th- I feel like, you know, having the spotlight on you when you're not ready, like kind of, uh, I guess it really exposes like the kind of person you are. Like, are you ready for this or not? And <laughs> I mean, Do you anytime you ready, I mean, I feel like we're ready cause we, we made it through it, you know, and for all the good or bad things we did, you know, how, how we responded to criticism, whether it was good or bad, the way we, we handled things, like we got through it, you know, and. I think keeping a band together, I mean, that's a big feat, especially to be this far into it. Uh, so I'm glad we went through it that way. I, I think it's better to get um, to have a backlash and have to deal with like adversity earlier on rather than later in your career, you know, because sometimes like bands don't really have that. And then it kind of hits later and all of you have ever known is success and positive press and stuff. And then when there's that one thing that doesn't click, and, you know, later in your career, it's maybe a little tougher to deal with. I mean, now, you know, I don't care about negative stuff as much because it's like we dealt with such a, an intense backlash with Ascendancy or after it, at least, um, that everything now just feels like nothing. And I don't think about it too much. Uh, and, <laughs> you know, it was definitely, I don't know, like, I don't know other bands. I, I mean, at least it, it, it made us more appreciative uh, of what we went through and how, we wanted to treat other bands, especially bands we took on tour. I mean, that was kind of what we learned, a big lesson we learned out of it that, you know, especially when a band's doing good or something, you know, you don't want to knock on people. Like, they're going through the same thing we did. So we we always are mindful of that. And, you know, we try to champion bands and wish the best for them. Um, you know, if we can bring out bands that are kind of doing something cool, it's, it's fun. You know, when we did that tour over in the UK, like two years ago, we had great bands. You know, we had... Um, Power Trip and Venom Prison for the European leg. And then we had Code Orange and then both of those bands on. And it was great. You know, they're all bands that are up and coming and doing great things. And I would rather be a band that's like pushing and championing that stuff than, you know, getting mad that like there's hype around it. You know, when you're this far into your career, there's no more new band hype. It's really the record is going to speak for itself. So we worry more about that than like, how like what a magazine's saying like we're not going to get the headline the, the black sabbath headline thing anymore <laughs> it's now it's like either your record's good or it's not well i mean listen there's there's so much in, in many ways even though here's the way i looked at it at the time you know even though i was older th- than you guys and my band had been around and more established i the way i always looked at it was it's incumbent upon me as someone who wants to do well in the industry to study success Right. Mm-hmm. So that takes a certain amount of humility on my end to not be like, oh, just because I've been around longer means I'm doing it better. Right. So one of the things yeah. I noticed when we did that UK tour um, was just that you guys don't didn't have that thing about most bands who were who were touring of like, I don't know, that kind of you guys just weren't reckless and kind of just into the moment, you seem to kind of mm-hmm. see the bigger picture and you had a maturity uh, that was beyond your years where you looked at it more, I think, from a professional standpoint. You know, like I noticed you guys every day, everyone would be, you know, uh, practicing 
their instruments, you know, and mm-hmm. not just like a normal, like, all right, I'm just going to fuck around. No, you guys seem to really understand, okay, I have to take this time to better myself as a musician and maintain my chops. And, you know, you have someone like, like you or, or Matt, you know, you guys aren't like, you know, big party guys. You're not, you know, Matt yeah. always seemed to like take, you know, cause I, when we took him on his first tour, you know, he was just getting his dip in a toe and he was having some fun, having some drinks. And by the time we did that tour two years <laughs> later, yeah. you know, he was seemed to be very regimented and, mm-hmm. for, you know, very, uh, you know, adamant about, you know, his, his diet and kind of, you know, things, things like that. Whereas like, you know, me, I got that party gene, man. I just, you know, yeah. I don't know what it is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, I, I guess maybe after the first few tours, like, you know, it was the, I feel like before ascendancy came out and after ascendancy came out, we were a different band. I mean, before ascendancy came out, I think there was just not the level of, um, responsibility, uh, you know, of having an album out, having it like react and all the attention on you where you can just be like, yeah, we're just having fun. And if the show sucks, like you can go and drink like Jaeger shots at the bar after and like just hang out with people and, you know, have a, like a literally just a party for the entire tour. And like those first couple tours in the van were incredible. They're fun. You know, it was just like really there was no pressure. You know, you're the opening band. No one's there for you, really. So you just you party and you have fun. You don't have to like play a show for an hour and a half and you have energy to like stay up all night at that point. And then when like ascendancy comes out, I feel like there was this sort of transition of like that band that was kind of like, Oh, like carefree and partying and stuff meets the reality of an album starting to take off. And like where the shows are like getting bigger and we're like doing a headlining tour. And it's like, you can't keep that up for headlining and stuff. It, it kind of really, I mean, yeah, we're young. We probably could have probably burned the candle at both ends for a lot longer, but I think we kind of realized that's not going to work. And, you know, the more we kind of took it serious, you know, we kind of let that stuff be an afterthought. It's like, yeah, we can have drinks, you know, but maybe like chill out a little bit more and not let that be the priority. Let the band be the priority. And, um, in a weird way, I think that maybe rubs some people the wrong way too. I guess maybe some people thought we were like overly serious about it or. Yeah. Well, it's, it's funny you brought that weird. up because it made me think about how much of touring and bonding is all about like. Yeah. It's like, drinks. it's a, it's a drinking is like a social thing amongst bands. You mm-hmm. know, someone like Matt, who is just really, you know, concerned about his health and being, mm-hmm. a, it's like, it's, it's weird. This thing that can kind of alienate you yeah. from your peers, but ultimately be, is the, the right thing to do for your your health and for your body and your mind but it it does end up like some people are like oh that guy's just he's an asshole yeah or he's, yeah, not he hanging out. Hang, he's better than us he doesn't want to hang out with yeah. us us uh you know punters over here but mm-hmm. i but I, it's funny I, I just can see it from both of those angles but ultimately if you want to have any amount of longevity yeah you know you have to you know that to me that person who's always <laughs> Focus on, on those things is always going to have the the upper hand, you know, in terms of focus. Yeah, it's it's definitely um, it's kind of funny. Uh, I don't know if you've been watching it. I'm sure you have, but like you know, watching that like the last dance with the bulls Every, and stuff. Oh my and god, just, I love it. And you know, it is like I mean, of course, documentary, and it's I would say it's like obviously meant to to paint a lot of the people in a positive way. But like you know, it is interesting. Like I mean, the the most dominant team of that era and just like the way how people like approached 
you know, their own game and just like the whole thing. And, and, you know, you can rub people the wrong way when you're just so like obsessed with wanting to like have, uh, either success or to win or to do whatever it is in your career that like is the peak top thing. And I do think, you know, looking back, like everyone's like, yeah, like that team was great because of like what they, they did. They were willing to kind of go that extra distance and to like on their off season and prepare and do things that not everyone was willing to do and then come back and win it. And, you know, obviously being in a band is not really totally analogous with like sports, but, you know, wanting to like be your best and on the off time getting better with practicing and like on tour, how you approach things. Cause there, there is sort of an analogy there with how they play games every night. We tour every night and like, you can stay up and drink all the time. You can do drugs. You can do whatever you want, but it is going to catch up to you at some point. You know, it's not many people can really keep that up for that long. And I, it is weird because there's that social aspect of like the hanging out after and like, you know, for the people, maybe guests coming to the show, it's like their party night for the week. And then like for us, it's not, it's, this is just another night we have to, the main thing is we got to be good for the show. And balancing all that stuff especially when you're much younger you know it's a lot to kind of take in and having to learn those lessons whether it's you know waking up with a hangover or just not playing a good show like that's not a good feeling i feel like when you've played a bad show because you drank or something like that that is for me that that's the worst feeling in the world you feel like you've (laughs) you've i don't know i feel like i'd rip someone off if i didn't play a good show because of that well, I, I definitely did did have a, a couple of those. I remember we did a tour with Avenged in '03, <laughs> and they were it was like one of their first tours. And even one of them was like, "Yeah, you know, you guys, you know, you know, you, you probably think you're playing great drinking." <laughs> Basically, give me a little like, "Hey, maybe maybe have 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 a little a little less," you know. You know, I think for myself relating to that, it's uh, I have this weird idea about the kind of quote-unquote rock and roll lifestyle like i kind of mm-hmm. i still have some reverence for that for like the lemmies and the you know the, the guns yeah. and roses stories and all, all that stuff that there's some kind of there's definitely some kind of allure to me about the connection between how it's all kind of synergistic in, in that attitude and that that feel and that recklessness that people kind of uh connect to as like the, the lore mm-hmm. of rock and roll but then I also see this kind of um, that the other end of that, right? Because sometimes yeah. you have artists who go full bore into that, and they kind of they burn really bright, but then it it burns out, you know, like a Kurt Cobain or yeah, or, totally, or, or or something like that. But the you know, can you extrapolate, you know, a Jimi Hendrix from drugs you know can you you know what yeah, i'm saying like, like I, that's hard to say you know <laughs> you know and um like would you have had a lot of you know a lot of the kind of psychedelic inspired you know mm-hmm. rock from the 60s and 70s and, and things like that it's very it's very difficult difficult i think to kind of uh figure that out but i'm i i kind of look at it in this dualistic way because mm-hmm. like i said i always did see how disciplined you guys were how disciplined even a young event sevenfold and kind of saying damn it these, these bands we were at a similar level and then they went to yeah. this, this thing. So it's about holding yourself accountable and being honest with yourself and saying, okay, mm-hmm. well, such and such got to this place. It, you know, I, I it, it put back in my head the idea about that there is some meritocracy to this thing. It's not just about writing a good song or being a good performer, yeah. but 
the day-to-day work, you know, um, Mm -hmm. of just running an organization. And you guys, I mean, the only real instability you've had is in your drummer slot, uh, which I wanted to... (laughs) Wanted to, you know, I don't know what we wanted to talk about right right now, yeah. but uh, you know, you guys, you know, I, I was looking at, you know, you've had the same manager, pretty mm-hmm. much, for the whole run of the band. Yeah, the entire time, pretty much that I've been in. Um, I don't know about your booking agent situation. If that's been relatively uh, same, like the same label, yeah. same uh, label, same booking agent, same management. Um, that's kind of been like the irony of like the, you know, us. I guess sort of like the joke of like having a bunch of drummers is that we've had a very like stable um, group of people around us and, you know, not to diminish like having like the drummers that have played with us, but like having like uh, the business end not change a lot, like that's a pretty big thing. You know, a lot of bands go through different managers and stuff and like can really change a lot of things. And it's not to say that like, it's not impossible. I mean, of course bands have, different managers and labels over time. But like that has been a big, like, like source of stability for us. And I, I, I would say that that has probably helped our career and longevity almost as much as just making the music because we've always had like this consistency and this long-term vision that hasn't been interrupted by having to bring in a new manager or someone that maybe doesn't understand where we come from or what we do or a new label. I mean, the label thing, like obviously Roadrunner was an indie label. And then of course they became a part of Warner and all that stuff. And like, those are changes we had really no say in, but we have like, you know, Roadrunner still has a lot of, or a couple of the people from the original Roadrunner are still there. So there's still this like lineage and connection to, you know, where we started from on that end. And that, in my opinion, is a big thing. Yeah. But I mean, it's something as, I, as someone who has just studied bands and who's successful and why they're successful, I've noticed that, that a lot of the more successful bands have had that consistency. And I think one of the other reasons why a lot of bands don't succeed is because they always assign the blame to somewhere else, right? It's like, we're not doing this because the manager sucks, because the label sucks, because this, and it's, it's never we're not doing the right thing. It's just that Mm -hmm. we didn't get that because we didn't have the right people. And listen, in in many of those instances, I'm sure that that is true. There are matters that rip bands off. There are labels that don't uh, do the job properly or booking agents that uh, don't put you as a priority. And I think that 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 is true, but uh, consistency and stability within uh, just the, the industry side of it, I think sets a culture. Right. It's just a culture mm-hmm. of like, we're not just going to, you know, we trust each other. We believe mm-hmm. in each other. And it just and it has a sense of of, of calm. And, you know, and, I, and I, I've i noticed that with bands that just are able to kind of, like I said, be, between the way you guys approach it from a very professional standpoint and then mm-hmm. having this infrastructure in place, it just allows you to just focus on the work. And you've seen that with the consistency in the band. There hasn't been some like, oh, this record they fell off or this, they, yeah. they, you know, this guy went to rehab and they waited five years to put out a record. You know, it just hasn't been, been the case. Well, that's how we weathered. Like I would say like our sort of down, uh, down periods, the, the, you know, the valleys, you know, when you're coming off a hot record, like ascendancy, and then you have, like when we made the crusade and 
sort of just all of the bumps along the way that we uh, went over, like making the record, touring for it, all the things we had to kind of learn as we were doing a like a true follow up when you're like, okay, you're successful now. Now you have to like follow that yeah. and just all of those things. And again, like having that stability there, you know, I think a lot of the stuff we went through on that record maybe could have could have harmed or tanked a lot of bands. And um, over the years, we're we've been very introspective and we always are like, OK, what what didn't we do on this record? Why didn't it work the way we wanted? And, you know, why aren't the tours the ones we want to do? And so we're always kind of like viewing it from that standpoint of like what did we not do right you know and never you know not to say that like there hasn't been moments where like wow we wish you know maybe we could have done this and maybe the label should have done that or whatever but for the most part i feel like most of the changes were always coming from like within and we were always thinking about what we could have done a little better and i mean it it's much better like when you think that way i think because if you're always looking for a scapegoat you know you're gonna be disappointed when like you start making these changes and like things aren't getting better you're just like kind of uh you know treading water and it's like you can only make so many changes before and there's only so many managers agents and labels you know you'll yeah. run out of that eventually so you have to kind of think about what it is you're doing that's not working um well it's interesting you bring up crusades i wanted to talk about that record yeah i am a ardent crusade defender I yeah. think I remember a couple of years ago we were talking somewhere and I felt like I'm like, I think I like this album more than you guys like this album. Yeah, um, I, it's definitely I don't feel like a, I don't have like a hatred for like the album or I feel like after I was kind of like when we were doing the follow up Shogun, we definitely had this sort of like, OK, we're out to prove something. And we definitely at that point, we only had like what Ember, Ascendancy and Crusades. That one felt like obviously the weakest album at that point but over time like i feel i feel like it's grown on me i mean i think fans really love a lot of the stuff from that record so people like liking it definitely changes my perspective of the record as opposed to touring on it and receiving the backlash that was a totally different thing well i listen i think some of the backlash was uh not warranted and i think sometimes when you you know essentially you guys almost could be, I guess, accused of doing what um, Avenged Sevenfold did on mm -hmm. Hail to the King. That was like, oh, yeah. it sounds like Metallica. It sounds like they're ripping <laughs> off this. And I'm like, yeah, but look at what that, how big that record yeah. was for Avenged. It was like a breakthrough record. Their biggest, you know, their biggest song on Spotify is Hail to the King. Mm -hmm. It opened number one in, you know, like six countries, including all yeah. of North America. Um, I just think maybe at the time you know when you're when you're coming from a more quote unquote you know like underground or like extreme yeah, totally. uh kind of standpoint it's it, literally people look at you like you're uppity they're like who do you think you are <laughs> you're think you one of these people yeah. oh you think you can be metallica you think you can do that yeah and, but part of it is just being like yeah yes we're special motherfucker <laughs> We're going to be doing what they're doing. Like, yeah. I, I just, I like the balls of it. And I personally, you know, you know, I just don't need screaming all the time. Like, honestly, mm -hmm. most of the metal I listen to, it's, it's really only in the last few years I've kind of almost gotten yeah. back into some bands that, that scream for the most part. But, you know, I'd rather listen to a singer most of the time that can sing. Yeah. 
Um, and I like and I like the vocal style. I like that grit. You know what I'm saying? I like put put a little yeah. put a little head in it. Ain't nothing wrong with that. Yeah, it's <laughs> kind of funny because like I, I, it was kind of a weird uh, coincidence that like before we did the crusade, and I I do this is like the only thing I do think is true is like we did that Metallica Master of Puppets uh, thing for Kerrang, yeah, and that came out before the crusade, so it was kind of like the tail end of ascendancy cycle that song came out and there wasn't a long period between that and the crusade and i always just kind of wonder i'm like if we didn't do that cover which of course i'm glad we did and like people really like it but i feel like a lot of the metallica thing was like they they thought we like did the master of puppets thing and then it goes right into the crusade and it's almost like it's almost like we were setting them up for like thinking of like putting the two and two together of like, okay, like they, they did the master puppets thing and here's the new album and it, there's definitely a stylistic change. There's a little less screaming and it's a little bit more leaning into the classic metal type thing than the previous record. And I've always like wondered if like that just shaped people's opinions. I mean, I don't think purely it was that, but it is kind of like weird that the timing of that and how we kind of got that label, at least at that period, and it kind of stuck for a little bit. I think just a lot of hypocrisy, right? If you guys had made, if your next album, right, follow up, had sounded exactly like, you know, Arch Enemy, Wages of Sin, right? Yeah. And you just ripped off Arch Enemy for a whole album. I don't think anyone would care. If you had ripped off, did a record, and you just ripped off Meshuggah for a whole album, no one would, they <laughs> were like, like, they're like, it's kind of weird. They sound like Meshuggah now, but <laughs> it's, but when you rip off, when quote unquote rip off, yeah. When you are influenced by or feel, people think you are trying to yeah. ride the coattails of a really big band, oh, yeah. they get totally. angry because they look at it as somehow, um, you know, that it's like measured and it's and it's cynical and mm-hmm. that it's like this thing of like, oh, we're going to quote unquote sell out or whatever. But I just think it's not fair. I think if a, if a brand, you know, brand new band comes out and rips off a, an extreme metal band, no one cares. They're just like, oh, man, they're like... You know, yeah. if if you came out like with a brand new band, you sounded exactly like old Morbid Angel. People mm-hmm. were like, oh man, it's sick, man. They're like a throwback, right? They would yeah. just pat you on the back because it was you're because you're ripping off some underground shit. But if you try and do anything like, but if you come out now, you sound exactly like Post Malone. They're like, yeah. oh, you fucking sell out. All you're trying to do is just you're just being trendy, you know. And I think it's mm-hmm. just I think it's hypocritical. And I think you should play what you want, you know. And the truth is, because of that, there's actually less. Music influenced by a Guns N' Roses, a Metallica, because people are afraid to to kind of touch that for some reason. Because I think yeah. they're afraid of backlash. Yeah, it was definitely uh, it was kind of a weird thing. I mean, once that kind of sticks, once something happened, you can't really. I mean, no matter what you say or do in the press, like those kind of things stick with you for a bit until they kind of just eventually it just kind of goes away. I feel like now someone says something like that about us, like, you just look like an idiot. Like, because, like, we don't, we aren't that type of band. Like, we've done our own things. We've been around for this long. Like, I think now, especially with the last few records, we've kind of, like, settled into, like, what our sound is. And, you know, it doesn't, I mean, of course, Metallica is my favorite band and a huge influence on all of us. But, like, we do things that they don't. And we have a lot of influences that we pull from that, like, definitely make us, kind of outside their realm and I, I don't think you can really compare bands 
like that from different time periods and stuff. Like we're, we're on our own trajectory than them. And, you know, new bands are not going to be the new trivium. They're going to do their own thing. And, uh, but with that record, it's like, I, I mean, the biggest thing is like, we just came off tour and we went into the studio. We didn't understand the concept of like writing time and like how much pre-production we would need. Because at that point the band had been off tour more than it had been on tour. So like all the songs from Ascendancy and like Ember were written over years, you yeah. know? And it's like, when you have time to just jam endlessly when you don't have tours, that's a totally different thing than having touring obligations and then having to come off the road and write a record. Were and you like, told to write an album or was, you just wanted to? I think there was just this sort of like, wow, this band is like really taking off with Ascendancy. We need to get a new record out as soon as possible. You know, we had touring coming up. So we, we really, the mistake was having the touring booked without the record being done already. Like, instead of just giving ourselves some room to kind of, like, breathe and process what happened with the sentency and maybe, like, you know, sit with some ideas a lot longer and sit with Jason a little bit in the pre-pro, it was just sort of like, we got to go. We got to, like, make something. And, uh, I mean, we did ourselves a disservice with that because... Although, like, you know, I do, like, a lot of songs on that record, and especially a few of them are real fan favorites. Like, there's some on there I'm like, we needed more time, you know? It, they needed more time in the oven, you know? We were not ready to do some of those songs, I think. And we learned that because Shogun, we took a long time with the writing, and that was just something we weren't going to ever uh, do again, was, like, go without that time to give ourselves for writing. Yeah. No, I mean, I, listen, I think I totally can see how... how you have your own issues with an album because I think a lot of times we we will feel a certain way about a piece of work mm -hmm. based on the process, yeah, more oh, totally. so than the result, right? Because you, if you have a if if the if a certain process or maybe it was like dealing with a certain producer that was getting on mm -hmm. your nerves or you felt like a mix was rushed or something or just just little things that are always going to bother you, um, and then if you have a really nice process and you feel like you were really prepared and it was smooth and uh, everyone was getting along, then that will feel feel better. But I think you know, Shogun was a big step forward for the band because it was a like you said, you you guys have all these kind of hesitations about Crusade or you know, wishy washy about whether you, you thought it was as good as it can be. But Shogun, it seemed like you did exactly what you wanted to do. You know, yeah. the songs it, it feels like it was a little more progressive. Um, you know, you kind of brought back, like I said, a lot more of the the screaming vocals, and it was. Uh, yeah, and I think that's how we started using like seven strings and stuff, right? Yeah, I mean, you know, it was kind of like, well, actually, seven strings we did use on the Crusade, like Becoming the Dragon. There's a couple songs like that. Sadness will see her. That yeah, seven we string. had a couple songs like that. Um, but uh, you know, coming off of uh, doing that tour for the Crusade, you know, with all the like high points, like touring with Iron Maiden, all these crazy things, like we definitely felt like, I don't know, we we went into the Shogun, kind of a chip on our shoulder with a lot of things and you know we felt like it was time to maybe work with some someone else with production uh you know working with nick raskalinich was like i think a big reason the album pushed towards progressiveness with like the the riffs and stuff was like he had just come off working with rush mm -hmm. and we had just kind of come off the crusade feeling like okay we didn't like bring bring it as hard as we could have and that was sort of like where we just kind of left off like with the writing. We were just like, okay, we got to get in there and work. And, you know, one of the first sessions Nick did with us, he was like, you guys are not ready. You need to keep writing. You don't have enough stuff. 
Uh, it's not all like you don't have nearly enough stuff and it's not good enough. <laughs> and like, so we had to continue. And I mean, it went on for quite a bit. And, uh, but it was kind of, you know, I think we needed to hear that. You know, you need to tell, sometimes you need someone to tell you it's not good enough. And that definitely, it pissed us off uh, the first time we heard it. But, you know, the results of the record speak for themselves. You know, it's a fan favorite. We put ourselves through a lot to do that record. And, you know, it um, it took a lot writing-wise. But, you know, that was a fun record to make. Like, the recording was great. But the writing was, like, it felt very tedious. And those were long songs. Like, Shogun, you know, it was like a 12-minute song. And we were just, like, that took a long time to make that shit. You know, <laughs> we haven't done a 12 minute song since. So maybe I don't know. It, it takes a lot to do. Well, I mean, I think that was just a, a moment in time. I mean, over to me, over the course of those records, I thought In Waves was a big, you know, that's one of my favorite albums you guys have yeah. done. And I think the song In Waves may be my favorite Trivium song. Um, and uh, it's an interesting song because I'm like, I'm like, yo, I was like, yo, if you listen to that song, there's no verse. It's just like three yeah. choruses. <laughs> <laughs> yeah I, well there was actually something with nothing that. but all um, chorus no actually funny enough you should say that I, I feel like before like when we were writing all that stuff and i brought that song in i think i read an interview with uh with uh what's his name will will i am uh black eyed peas yep. and i feel like i swear in the interview he was like yeah like i, I want every part to be the the chorus and i feel like we kind of like when we went into that, it was kind of like, okay, well, every part's kind of like the chorus for that, except for like the middle where it's like the bridge and the solos. But like every other part is sort of, I guess, debatable. What's the chorus of this song? Is it the, chorus, the big hook, maybe. you know, or is it the melodic sung part? And um, sometimes when you do those sort of like really outside the box things, like you, it's really one way or the other. It's either going to be going to work or it's going to really not work and uh that was outside the box for sure yeah and that's very hard though that's a hard kind of thing to do well yeah like simple ideas are i mean anyone that's tried to write music uh like for anyone that like doesn't write and stuff like if you think simple stuff is easy it is like that's the stuff that will get in your head and you will like question for days if you've done it right if you left out enough or if you've put too much in like simple stuff is tough like that and in waves is kind of like this i wasn't even trying to like write a song when i had started writing those riffs like i was just joking around and i came up with this thing and then me and nick jammed it and you know turns around like okay this is this is a big song and like it becomes you know one of our biggest songs to date and then like still like the song that closes out the show then you never i would have never thought after shogun we'd write like a song like that and it would like connect with people and that record being like our sort of a resurgence and like for Europe, that was like our breakthrough record. It took that long for Europe to kind of connect for us. You mean mainland Europe? Yeah. Like Germany and stuff. Like at that point, up to that point, like we were, you know, I don't know, we could do a couple, like 500 people maybe in a big city in Germany or something. And that record came out and we played at Wacken and it was just like, kind of like the UK again for us on ascendancy. It was like, it connected and I have no idea how we could have ever planned something like that. It was just really the right timing for that record and people were ready for us like in mainland Europe and it just took off from there. What's your biggest, uh, territory currently? Uh, 
Honestly, probably, I mean, of course, the UK has kind of stayed really pretty big for us. Like, we've always been pretty consistent there. You know, we can play, like, Brixton Academy and stuff like that and play, like, the, you know, we've done a lot of the regional touring there, which has helped us quite a bit. Um, definitely Germany has gotten a lot bigger for us. Uh, but, you know, the States, I feel like in the last two years, or two years, like, the last two records, like, the States has, like, come around big time for us, like you know, playing much bigger venues than we ever have headlining. And I don't know, just the timing and everything. It's just the way the records have connected with like different audiences over time and being able to kind of pull in new fans while also bringing old fans back. You know, I think the last record did that for us quite a bit. And even in this one, it's kind of continuing that. It's it's interesting when like someone will be like, I haven't listened to you guys in like 10 years, you know, for whatever reason. And like they just kind of get brought back into it with one record and um, it's been interesting for that to happen, and especially in the States. I mean, the, the festivals have helped big time, like the Wimmer festivals, those kind of things. Being able to kind of, I guess, sort of get our foot into the more mainstream rock crowds. Yeah. Um, you know, having a little bit of success with radio. You know, I don't consider Trivium like a radio band, but we're, we're kind of able to kind of ride the, the lines between the metal world and the rock world. You know, and that's uh, I, that kind of just came with some time, you know, and records and being able to kind of do that without totally alienating people in our fan base. You didn't you didn't force it. You know, the thing is, it, the truth is, you guys, um, you started out with a lot of accessibility. I mean, was it dying in your arms? Dying in your arms. So yeah, that's all. I the, mean, that was a that's a pretty that po- was a poppy one. song, right? You know, it's not. So you, you kind of I think as long as you establish your mm-hmm. kind of versatility early people are more or less okay with it um but nothing ever felt forced you know yeah um, I, that was kind of um having that, of that song in the that, yeah having that song on the record ascendancy i think um like you said i think it definitely you can kind of always point back to like well this is like what we've been doing like we've always had this sort of other element of the band where we can pull back and be more melodic i think as matt has really grown as a vocalist it's it's now it's seamless you know matt is can be a heavy singer he can be more melodic singing into brutal screaming you know it's a lot more it's easier to go through those things than i think on ascendancy it was like really kind of like it's still at that point it was kind of the I guess of the time of like the screaming, very melodic singing. And then we sort of started to kind of move from that, you know, with the records that followed. Well, yeah, that, that, that becomes very formulaic. The, you know, the good cop, bad cop um, yeah. paradigm, which was very, the kind of, that's just what was going on in that scene at the, at, at the time. And I remember even God forbid, cause we started all screaming and wanted to incorporate melodic, melodic vocals, but in a way, you know, it, it became this thing of like, is that the only way you can do it? And even, even currently with like bad wolves, I try and not do that as much as not that I have <laughs> that much of a, of a say mm-hmm. in, in all the, all the songwriting, but always, but I'm always trying to get the band to just not do that formula, which is, I think it, it goes across genre, right? That's literally what a hip hop song is, right? It's like rap in the verse and then have yeah. a melodic hook. It's the same yeah. idea. Um, but you know you want to, be, I think, want to be able to use those uh, those tools in, in ways that aren't typical. And I think that's why, in some ways, I kind of always favor you know a you know 
a more traditional heavy metal sound because they're not like if, if you're a, you know some a band like Metallica right and you know he's just mm-hmm. gonna he's just gonna sing he's gonna sing like how he sings yeah and in any part it's never like okay well it's gonna be this part's gonna be this kind of part and that part it's like no you're just gonna write a good song <laughs> you know what I'm saying it's kind and, of and like it, all the the genres like mixing over the years like the crossover thing I mean it kind of threw a wrench into the the whole thing with the concept of singing for for metal and for heavy music because over time I think like screaming definitely took on the main uh sort of precedence for like singing or excuse me like the vocalist in a band is was normally screaming when you associate it with metal and it's kind of been a weird back and forth you know I think over time then the singing kind of comes back into being a popular thing but I mean I'm glad we did we moved away and kind of tried to do our own thing you know and kind of literally found our own voice uh with Matt and how he can do stuff with our band and I mean we had the situation where a couple years a couple years ago like when he we thought maybe he couldn't scream anymore because like his style of screaming was just like hurting him physically yeah. and well, you know Corey we go was into, doing a lot of stuff live though right Corey started to do a lot more um but the last show we did we had to cancel a couple shows after but it was at uh, rock on the range during vengeance falls like we cut the set sh- kind of, sh- I think one song short, Matt did the last song and like, you know, physically could not like talk. He, he, I mean, we were worried he was going to have like damage to his voice. And then that was sort of like, w- like we were like, okay, what do we do next? And like, that was like what took us into silence in the snow. Like that was like on our minds writing it. Like, do we set it up to where, you know, maybe Corey does the screaming, but like, what do we do about the old songs? We had a lot of, kind of questions over our head at that point with if Matt could even scream again. And, you know, it took him a long time because he started, um, like right after that happened, um, Matt from Avenged hit up, uh, our Matt and, you know, got him in touch with his teacher and, you know, he started doing lessons. He started like kind of relearning how to sing properly, you know, to where it wouldn't hurt his voice on tour and even to like scream, uh, in a way that he could do on tour. And, but that wasn't overnight. We didn't know if that would work. And um, so we had to do a record. And that was kind of like, okay, if we're going to do this record, like, and Matt can't scream, then I, this record's not going to have screaming. Like, it, it was kind of a weird place to be at, especially that far into our career. Of like, could we could we pull it off? And, I mean, I feel like, in a way, it, it really set us up for sin- Sentence and this record um, to kind of be like, you know, the melodic vocals are, are really in, like in the forefront of things. We don't like really go back and like we're not trying to replicate the ascendancy scream sing thing. It's like we've kind of moved into a new thing since then. But that record, we had to write all singing. And it's like it's hard to write verses, pre-courses and courses that are not like redundant and melodically just like doing the same thing. And, uh, you know, it, it really taught us quite a bit. I mean, uh, I don't know the record. I think some people maybe kind of don't like it as much as maybe some of our others, but uh, it was definitely a kind of a trying time for us to get through. Which record? Silence in the snow. Silence in the snow, and I mean, like, funny enough, like we have like probably our biggest song maybe in our catalog at this point uh, until the world goes cold. That's a great song. Um, thank you. Uh, but like you know, we actually had a breakthrough on radio. Like that was our 
to this date our only top 10 you know on the on rock radio in america and so i don't know it was like it was really crazy because like we were doing that touring and we just didn't know if if matt could scream again if he was going to be able to and like he got the technique and stuff down and it was like sort of just like going into the cinema sentence um you know okay well matt can do this again we don't have to we don't have to like become a band that has no screaming in our new material and we kind of like went back to uh being able to have it and it was weird it's like to do a record and not have it and then to go back to it was like really so there's no screaming on sounds in the snow no there's none and it's funny because people consider like people think of the crusade has no screaming but it does has quite a bit actually but silence in the snow has none it has no screaming at all and i mean maybe in hindsight i I think maybe Corey could have done could have put more screaming into it and probably should have done that. But uh, I was like, at the point we were at, we were like, you know, Matt is the lead vocalist. And if we don't have screaming, like, you know, maybe we have to kind of do something different here and set ourselves up to where, you know, future records are not going to have as much screaming or any. Um, and so that was kind of the route we took with that. Just kind of given like where Matt was with his vocals and if he could scream or not. And that's where we went. I have a question. Do you do vocal harmonies in the studio? Or does he do does does he do all his own harmonies? Um, well, actually, on this record, uh, Corey and I did do quite a bit of backup vocals. Um, and it wasn't really the plan going into it. We had done that before on like a kind of like a one off single, um, but we had never done that on a record. And Matt, you know, when he's recording, he's doing harmonies, he's doing main lines, and all that kind of stuff. But um. I did a couple on this one, and then when we went out and did drums, because we did drums at the end of the the studio time, me and Corey were out in L.A. while Alex was recording, and at the end of it, set up a mic, and he just had us do quite a few more lines and stuff, and there was a couple, there's a couple points where, I mean, you can definitely tell it's me singing, um, so that was kind of like a new thing to throw into the mix that was not planned, but seems like people are pretty stoked on it, and kind of having different uh, voices on the record kind of gives you that same dynamic of like having a different head for different guitar parts. You get like some sort of separation and layering that you don't get from having the same vocalist sing. Yeah. I, I, I always liked that. Um, Rob Flynn would always make Adam Deuce sing the, yeah. the high parts in the, in the studio because he wanted it to have that, that live feel and give it, you know, give it a different voice. Cause it's, Oh, it totally does. You know, it, it always, it works when, especially if, if two people's voices complement each other, like, you know, like you had a uh, Lane Staley and Jerry Cantrell, their voices just yeah, inseparable. so well, you know? Um, well, Elizabeth, I'm not going to keep you too much longer. I have a, I have a couple more, more questions. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> one of the things about you guys that I've, I've noticed is just how in kind of in tune you are with internet culture yeah. and, um, you know, making that something, you know, obviously you have the element of staying connected to your fans, but, but someone like you is, is, is very funny to me because in like normal life, you, you're like a very kind of quiet, you know, just mellow reserved kind of guy. But then you have like internet Paulo and you're like, <laughs> like a hilarious, like, comedian you're basically like an internet comedian but in real life it's like the, i'm like oh that's just the shit he's thinking but he never yeah. says you know you have all these that great- would, the inter- internet polo is how i was in school yeah like that clown? used to be that was just like the full time but I, I realized you know you can uh 
you have to learn to turn that off sometimes. And so now I can just uh, get on the internet and I can live out my adolescence online and see, people seem to uh, seem to laugh, you know. You get, it's funny because like the internet rewards all the worst things, you know. It, uh, <laughs> it, it like makes you get notoriety for being, you know, an asshole, for being bad, for saying insane stuff, for pushing conspiracies. So I don't know. You know, I try to like uh, – I, I definitely have a like a – sensor on myself i don't go too crazy like i if i I don't if i don't feel confident like in what i'm gonna say i just would not say it you know i don't try to like get on there and start shit every day and (laughs) sometimes you know you just find yourself stepping into it you know and it is what it is the internet it's crazy but then it's gone a week later and you're on to the next thing yeah, well, listen, you've you you have not shied away from uh, some internet beefs. You know what I'm saying? You'll you'll get into it with some motherfuckers. You 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 got into it with trapped guy, right? Yeah, that was kind of just like I saw him doing that stuff, and I was like, oh man, this be funny. This guy is like really kind of unhinged, and it was just kind of funny to get into it. I kind of laid the trap. I definitely want uh, that was no pun intended, but uh, kind of like a kind of like laid it out there, you know, to kind of see if I could reel him in and. I, I got him going and, you know, it was fun. You do it for a couple of days and then like anything on the internet kind of gets tiring. And now I kind of feel like it died down. You kind of see some stuff here and there. But at this point, I think he's like uh, getting into it with iced tea for some reason, which I'm like, you can, that's a wrong dude to probably fuck with. So I'm like, you've graduated to some, some real dudes. I'm just having fun <laughs> and shit posting. So yeah, well, good I, luck with I, that. I posted, I said right above that. I was like, talk shit, get shot. Just, you yeah. know, watch your back. <laughs> I mean, the dude literally, you know, made the song. And uh, so, you know, you've been warned, I guess. You know, if you want to screw around with those dudes. I'm just like, I'm just out here, like, having fun. Like, Ice-T's, that's a real, I mean, that dude's, like, cool as fuck. You know, we did Hell that yeah. tour on Mayhem, and he was awesome. Super cool dude. Like, I mean, would never want to fuck with him to begin with, but I'm like, would no, have no reason to. He's just a nice guy. But it was, like, really random. I'm like... Yeah, you're taking this inter- internet thing a little too far with uh, getting attention because <laughs> I don't. I wouldn't want to be screwing around with him. Well, I just I've just <clears throat> noticed, you know, with you guys, how you you've embraced meme culture. You know, like you kind of have this interplay between your fans of oh, yeah. not taking yourselves too seriously and and uh, and Matt, which is interesting to me because, like I said, a lot of times he's on tour. He's one of those guys where you, like mm-hmm. you don't see him because he's you know he's doing yoga and he's doing yeah. MMA and you know who knows he's like starting a cooking show. I don't, you know he's just he has yeah. all these like eclectic uh, interests and he's you know he's kind of doing his own thing. But his, it seems like his online personality is like he's all about connecting with people and, and yeah. kind of giving and obviously with the twitch thing you know seen the other day he, does, he said does it like three to five hours a day and i'm like jesus yeah. man how do you have well, time for life kind of been, it's kind of been interesting with uh with the twitch thing for him because i've kind of been able to see the progression of that over time because before twitch and re- really streaming was a thing besides for gamers maybe a couple of years ago you know I, I think like he was trying different things and like trying to find a way to do something like that. But just the platform didn't really exist or wasn't like a, accessible to maybe musicians and stuff like that. And I remember a couple of years ago, like like he had started doing like YouTube stuff. And I think I remember reading an article that talked about this streaming thing, Twitch. And I, I think I mentioned it to him and like he kind of like got into that and it was sort of like, at that point, I don't know how many other guys were doing 
uh, music stuff on there, but there was really no like, okay, well, how do you, how do you stream like music? How do you do live stuff? And over time it was like, at first he was using like his phone to like stream live shows. And then he got the, the crazy camera thing that you can like plug into the soundboard. And it was sort of just like, I don't know, just like our, the rest of our career, you, you just kind of figuring things out as you go and developing it. And, uh, it's been very interesting to watch it kind of uh, you know, get bigger and bigger. And of course now with everyone being at home, everyone's jumping onto Twitch and doing stuff like that. So, you know, we kind of just had like a head start with trying to do that, obviously through his, his Twitch account and streaming shows. And it's kind of like, uh, the Trivium extended universe, you know, it's not really, <laughs> it's not Trivium. Like, you know, he doesn't go on there and do only Trivium stuff, you know, and it's not just music, but like in some ways it can like, he can flip his account into a Trivium thing. Like we can do like we did our virtual signing and we had it running through his Twitch. We had it on our YouTube account and all that stuff. And so it's like kind of like, you know, sometimes it'll just be a purely Trivium thing. And like we're going to do more stuff with that in the next few months. You know, we have a lot of plans and ideas of what we want to do. But it's kind of a it's like instead of like the singer going solo in a band, he's just got a Twitch account. And it's like this sort of extension of the band and it's brought us into a whole new world and you know we've we've definitely started to do a lot more stuff with gaming uh mm -hmm. but we have the natural connection there with like matt being on twitch and you know doing a lot of game streaming and stuff and alex does as well and i uh i finally bit the bullet and got a new xbox so i've been jumping on their their streams here and there just for fun and it is cool and like fans seem to love it you know it's kind of like this extra like side of the band that they like. And we've always tried to be very close with fans, especially online, you know, starting in the MySpace days, you know, now it's, it's this whole extra thing and there's so many ways you can really interact with them. Yeah. I mean, to me, the thing that's so instrumental about it is that it, it has helped you guys, you know, having the mentality and the philosophy of constantly wanting and taking the initiative to be on the forefront of technological changes and cultural changes. Like the idea of Twitch of, of a kid watching someone else play video games, right? To someone like mm -hmm. me, when I found out that was a thing, yeah. it was so alien <laughs> to me. And that is a, and that's just a generational thing, right? Yeah. Um, and not having the kind of the hangups around that, whatever that, that may be for someone like me, even though I'm seeing that that's not really what he uses Twitch for. Sometimes he does, but it's, he mainly uses it as like, this, uh, you know, just this, you're just a fly on the wall while, while he's yeah. doing this thing and kind of, you know, it's basically Matt TV, right? Whatever he wants to do. Totally. But it, you know, so I think with so many bands, is you know, this happens where they just, they get stuck in their era. And they're yeah. like, well, I'm not going to get a Twitter account. I'm not going to be on Instagram. I'm it's not gonna. overwhelming. Yeah. Um, and... But if you can be at the forefront of that and take advantage of that, you're going to give yourself, a, you know, a, you know, just you're just going to give yourself an advantage over other bands who don't who don't mm -hmm. realize like that. And we're starting to realize realize that now. I was talking to John from my band, and I'm like, I'm like, dude, this is doing social media is just as much as part of our job as making an album mm -hmm. and being on tour. And if you take it that seriously and maintain yeah. the connections, it's going to give you an because an advantage over people that. Frankly, even though there's like the privacy factor that they just might actually just be lazier and they just don't mm -hmm. want to do as much stuff. Yeah. You know? So, I mean, you know, obviously 
we do a lot of this stuff, but at the end of the day, like the main thing is still like doing the music and like, there's a reason we don't, we're not live streaming our recordings or our writing sessions. Like there's like sort of this, like there's one piece of like our world that we keep to ourselves. And I feel like the writing and recording is really that area. And like, we kind of all respect that. That's like the boundaries, like that we don't cross for that kind of stuff, but everything else it's like, you know, getting out there and like being able to, you know, because we weren't able to go and do like normal promo stuff, like to have like all of us be online and doing stuff like 24 seven promoting it and doing all that. It allows us to still reach people and to still, you know, entertain them in different ways. And, you know, with Matt's account, he's able to still do playthroughs and like talk to people about the new record in a really direct way that didn't exist a couple years ago. And, you know, we, again, we just, it's, it's that kind of luck and timing mixed with just willing, being willing to like go to a place that doesn't feel like there's any purpose yet before people think there is, you know what I mean? Like who would have thought like, Oh, the gaming platform streaming would be uh, a good place for like bands to just like pop on and like interact with their fans. Like you, you just have to kind of try to do things and maybe not have them work out right away. But like now it's like, it seems like very obvious, but it's like, you know, when, when Matt was first doing Twitch, it didn't, it wasn't obvious that people were going to like want to tune into that kind of stuff. And there is definitely that like Matt's personality is perfect for streaming because he is a regimented person. Like you were saying earlier, he likes to do what he's going to do every day at the same time every day. And like, if you're a streamer, like that's the perfect way to work that out. You know, he's going to be on at whatever, nine, nine AM doing games and then come on later and do covers or whatever else he does. And, there's that like level of commitment that he's willing to do. And, you know, we haven't forced it. We don't like all do that kind of stuff, but we all do our things in our own ways. And, you know, it's a, it's about like furthering the band, uh, using those things like Twitch to push us into new areas like gaming and all that kind of stuff. And, you know, who, who knows what the next thing is, there's going to be virtual reality or something or holog maybe we'll be a hologram band next, you know, <laughs> at this rate, we'll be doing hologram tours next year. Well, I feel like if, if it is going to happen, you guys would be open to it because like I said, <laughs> you're, you're constantly looking at the next frontier of, of where the stuff is going and not, not being a Luddite ultimately I think helps ensure your survival and, and just thriving yeah. and, and how things change. But, um, so I got, I'm gonna let you go, but I just have I need I need to, this is more of a, a request. Yeah. So I have this idea of doing a podcast where I get all the ex Trivium drummers on one <laughs> show and they yeah. just like talk shit on you guys. Do I have your blessing? I mean, you know, anyone's willing to say whatever they want. You know, I, I think I mean, our real whole shit thing... talking. I mean, really taking a dump on you guys. I mean, I want I want it all. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> I guess here's where I am with like a lot of that stuff. You know, obviously, you know, especially. Like, you know, when, when people like leave the band or when we've like, you know, parted ways with people, it's like, it's not been under the best circumstances at that point, but we've always, I think over time we just kind of realized, you know, it, especially with people that we like had on our records, you know, like they're a part of the history and we never wanted to ruin like those records for people. We, I like when I see bands shit talking, like former members, or just just going, I don't know, going off on people for petty shit. Like, that's how it looks. It's like, it looks really dumb. And a lot of the things that we didn't like or agree upon when we were all in the same band together, like, probably sounds stupid to people. Like, if I started telling people, like, my issues with, like, any 
dude that was in this band that isn't, they'd be like, that's stupid. Like you are just like, just deal with it or whatever. But it's like those things sometimes are not possible to deal with. You have to kind of move on and you know, you, you like learn that over time. It's just better to move away. But like, I at least respect all the guys that have been in our band and the records they made with us. Like I, I, I would not want to like bring up bad stuff about them. Like if, if they ever wanted to like talk about stuff, like that's their right to do whatever they want. But like they made those records and like, I hope that those are special records to them and they would still probably, you know, would rather people have positive thoughts about those records rather than like, I don't want people to think about ascendancy and think about like nasty, dumb shit that doesn't matter. You know what I mean? Well, you heard it here first guys. Uh, He gave me a (laughs) thumbs up. Yeah. Talk as much shit. It's gonna be great. Yeah. Let's see. If, it's if not. They... It'll never. It'll never come from us. We are. You know. We. We just like. We've kind of moved. We move forward. You know, with everything we do, and just being a uh, petty with like former members is not something we ever wanted to, to have in this band. And uh, so that's it. We're we're silent. Anyone else is willing is able to do whatever they want. We have no control. I over them. I love that. It's a great <laughs> politician, polished answer. You know what I'm saying? The only thing I was missing yeah. was the thumb thing. It's like, yeah. we, we hold no ill will against uh, yeah. any, anyone's in the band. <laughs> they were good people, made good records. We're talking some folks. <laughs> but uh, listen, brother, I, I really appreciate you taking your time uh, to doing the show. We've been talking about doing this for a couple years now, uh, but I think this, this worked out just fine because you know what? You ain't got shit else better to do. Yeah. Talk to me. No, man. Thank you very much. You know, it's 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 fun to kind of like sit down and like talk about the stuff for, you know, over the the normal like 30 minute uh, interviews where I can kind of kind of explain different things about records and times with the band. You know, it's crazy because like, you know, to go from like where uh, where I was like opening up for God forbid to like now on your podcast and stuff, it's like who could have ever. I would like would never be able to like conceive of like the possibilities, you know, just like how things have changed, you know, but in some ways, like, you know, we've, no matter what, we've all like stayed in this industry. We've, we've found a way to make it work. And like, really that's all, that's all you can do, but it's just wild. Like the amount of time that's passed since then. Dude, you know, what's crazy. The first time I met Matt, he interviewed me at the wild. house of blues in Orlando on the headbangers ball tour. And I had, I had already, I knew who he was. Cause, uh, well, you know, uh, I'd heard, you know, some music cause Jason and stuff, but he was, mm-hmm. I don't know if he had a zine or if it was, I can't remember if it was video, but yeah, yeah he, he interviewed I think me. He told me about that. So that's that's what, so wild. You'll have to, uh, next time we play the house of blues, you'll have to come down and, uh, do an interview with Matt in yeah, person and, to complete the, the circle. By the way, and there's another little Easter egg. If you guys, anyone in here has the, it's one of the New England Hardcore Metal Fest oh, DVDs. Yeah. Matt yeah. is in the crowd, like stage diving. Kill Switch, right? Yeah, Kill Switch. You could see him. He's got big wild hair. It's hilarious. <laughs> Feeling it. Yeah, man. All right, man. It's crazy. New album is great. Congratulations Thank on you. the on the release. Thank you very much. And uh, yeah, I'll tell everyone who listens to the show to buy that shit. They probably already did buy it, but you know, maybe like I say, get the Daco bump. Yeah, man. not a Venera. Thank disease. you very much. Yeah, definitely not. It's a good thing. Talk to you later, brother. Thank you. Bye-bye.
that was What the Dead Men Say, the title track from the brand new Trivium album. Great song, excellent album. I'm sure if you've listened this long, you're a massive fan, as am I. Huge thanks to Apollo for being a guest on this show. I thought that was awesome, man. He's a, a guy knows his stuff, and he is very he's very refined. All right, he's 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 got his shit down. There's no no he ain't no jabroni. All right, he had a professional microphone, and right? he had his nice headphones. He was ready for that shit. So I I really appreciate that, and I hope you guys enjoyed that. Just to let you know, I have several great guests coming up i've been uh spent a couple weeks i probably did like five or six interviews so it kind of gave myself a nice little cushion now so i don't have to kill myself but i've uh after having a couple months where i wasn't that busy with the show i'm trying to get back on it and make sure you guys have the content and have the entertainment to get you through this difficult time so love you guys keep listening to the show tell your friends go to itunes rate and review you know buy the new trivium album listen to it and uh you know do do things you know sell some medicine bitches mama out Hello, Tom May here, host of Future Friday. I've spent the last 15 years on the road with my band, The Menzingers, where I've met all kinds of wild and fascinating people. So I started a podcast. On Future Friday, I talked to fellow musicians about the moments that made them, their passions outside of music, and the curiosities that tie us all together. I've also talked to the likes of UFO researchers, magicians, soldiers, and documentary filmmakers, and I'm constantly searching for folks that can shape and change our view of the world. You can check out Future Friday wherever you like. This is the Jabberjaw Podcast Network.